Hello everyone and welcome back to season nine of the Great Woman Artist podcast. I couldn't be more delighted to kick things off this series with an interview with the legendary Sonia Boyce, especially as she features in my book, The Story of Art Without Men, which is out now in the UK and Europe and launches in the US on the 2nd of May. Order your copy now via Waterstones if you're in the UK, Barnes & Noble if you're in the US, or head to thegreatwomanartist.com for more information, including dates for upcoming talks. But before we get into this episode, I am delighted to say that we are supported by Ocular, a premium gallery platform, magazine and advisory business. Ocular represents the best of contemporary art. Ocular.com provides collectors, art world professionals and art lovers with online access to over two 200 of the world's best galleries. With the leading galleries represented on Ocular, you can use the platform to search for artworks by and follow exceptional artists. Ocular's online magazine is also a great resource providing coverage on the ideas, art and people shaping contemporary art right now. Ocular has, since 2010, published in-depth interviews with leading art world voices, including many important great women artists, such as today's guest, Sonia Boyd. If after listening to this interview, you want to learn more about Sonia Boyce's practice or other incredible artists, do visit ocular.com. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most influential and groundbreaking artists alive, Sonia Boyce. Born and raised in London, where she still lives today, Boyce has been taking the art world by storm since the 1980s, when she and other trailblazing artists, such as Lubaina Hamid and Claudette Johnson, emerged collectively onto the art scene as the Black Arts Movement. Putting images of women and their stories centre stage, they exhibited in shows such as Five Black Women in 1983 at the Africa Centre, Thin Black Line at the ICA in 1985, and The Other Story at the Hayward Gallery in 1989. Since then, Boyce's indefatigable practice, spanning drawing, printmaking, photography, installation, video and sound, has constantly evolved, focusing on collaboration, often with an emphasis on improvisation, as she works with other artists to create immersive installation environments. Taking on a broader ethos of collage and what it means today, both literally and metaphorically, Boyce's practice has brought together a multitude of people, places and perspectives to provoke invaluable conversations about the world we live in today. Often involving sound pieces, when I find myself amongst one of Boyce's works, it becomes easy to lose myself inside this very special, unusual but gripping world. 
Since 2014, Boyce has been a professor of black art and design at the University of Arts in London. In 2016, she was made a Royal Academician. In 2019, she received an OBE for her services to art. And of course, in 2022, she became the winner of the Golden Lion Award at the Venice Biennale, which she won for Feeling Her Way, an immersive exhibition filled with bejeweled wallpaper and improvisatory song by women musicians, which is currently on view at Turner Contemporary and Margate before travelling to Leeds and later Yale Centre for British Art. Sonia's work is, as I'm looking forward to discussing with today, wonderfully varied because so much of it is based on what happens in the moment. Her enthusiasm for spontaneity and the unplannedness of art making is palpable, just as she said recently on Desert Island Discs, to not have a plan and just know that something's going to happen and then seeing where it goes. Usually it goes off in such spectacular ways. I am now addicted to the non-plan plan. Sonia Boyce, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? <laughs> Thank you. That's a that's an epic opening gambit. Thank you, Katie, for your, your invitation. My absolute pleasure. So it's such an honour to speak to you. Really, I've been a lifelong fan and I've always admired from afar. But I mentioned your work is multitudinous. I have been lucky enough to witness your early, dazzling, figurative work at the likes of Life Between Islands at Tate Britain last year. I've seen your collection of posters, articles and vinyl covers, the devotional collection that honours black British women musicians at Manchester Art Gallery in 2018, and more recently, your sound and installation piece at the Venice Biennale. Whenever I see your work, it is like entering this other world that is so considerate so female-focused, so joyous, yet so serious and important. It includes so many voices. It's as though you create these atmospheres chimed with song that tell these overlooked stories and place them centre stage. So I want to start by asking you, how do you want people to feel in front of your work and what atmosphere do you want to create? I suppose I should probably speak specifically about Feeling Her Way, the show that was at the British Pavilion. Now, much of that work was made during lockdown. We were able, in the moments when we weren't locked down, to find a day when the performers could come together and we met at Abbey Road Studios. And I suppose one of the things that I was thinking about in bringing those kind of live voices together was how we'd all been in these separate spaces and I wanted people to kind of come to the exhibition and have an emotional rather than just a cerebral kind of experience that somehow the skill and soulfulness of their voices would touch people and also that people could be in a space where they could sit where they could kind of move around together and separately at the same time so it was really important for me to try and harness the stunning voices that I've been working with and hope that people would feel that there was kind of balm in some way from the experience of us all being away from each other. I think that I remember walking in and sort of hearing these voices, not really not quite knowing which room they were coming through and the kind of travellingness of voices as well and the fact that voices can exist in so many different elements and so many different sort of higher places in a way. I mean, that was very much the aim, the ambition. It's really difficult for me to talk about aims, objectives and things. <laughs> and one of the things kind of discovering during the installation was, I mean, I knew from the outset that to have lots of different voices apparent at the same time, there was going to be sound bleed. And I hadn't really fully anticipated what you could call the kind of meta sound 
of all of these voices together what that would feel like. But it was about being immersed. It was about being held by all of these voices as people could move through the space. And we spent quite a bit of time, actually, with you know, the audiovisual technicians trying to calibrate the levels of sound because some of those voices were incredibly piercing and they could pierce right through the building. And, you know, the thing that I love about sound is that it doesn't really respect things like borders and doorways or one room to another. Sound will bleed. And I really wanted to play with that as much as possible while trying to stay respectful to the individual performers themselves. So that was a thing that emerged in the making, in the fabricating of that show, was that sense of literally one being completely surrounded by sound. I did call it noise at one point because it is it moves between noise and sound and song because you know each performer brings something very different to the question of their own way of voicing. And I recognise also that... I was throwing quite a lot at the audience, you know, that there wasn't necessarily a kind of an explanation as to why they might be feeling what they're feeling, that there wasn't a kind of sense of holding people's hands as they go through an exhibition. It wasn't tightly held. I really wanted people to just experience what they experience rather than telling them what to experience. Yeah, but I think that's some of the most powerful art is when it's not prescriptive because also the beautiful thing about art and the great thing about your show is that it's also on view now in Margate. It's going to go up to Leeds. It's like the power of art is that it can live on through so many different iterations. The artist actually doesn't need to be there anymore because it has its own life. Well, yeah, one wants it to. And, and of course it has to because, of course, though one shouldn't have to say this, I will die at some point. And the, the point about making art is, or being part of this field and this industry and this history is that the works carry on because hopefully they are engaged in a discourse that people find um, interesting in some way. So, of course, one wants to make work that then can go on and have its own life in some way. And it's been really interesting reconfiguring the show from the British Pavilion to Turner Contemporary and having to rethink the work and recontextualize it in the context of the space there. And I really love and really enjoyed that process of rethinking the work and reconfiguring it. Yeah. I mean, art is immortal in a way. And the fact that, you know, we experience artwork by people who are also no longer here. Sorry to sort of start with death. <laughs> it does happen. I mean, why are you drawn to this idea of working collaboratively and sort of lifting these other voices up? I suppose I've not only looked at the question of sound, but this idea of people coming together, this question of encountering, which has been in the work from day one, I think, early in the 1990s, very early. In fact, actually, towards the end of the 80s, I'd kind of got to this point where I didn't really want to be in the centre of the work anymore and trying to figure out ways in which to change the way I was working. And I happened to be teaching in two places. One was at Goldsmiths, I was teaching on the MA course, and I was also teaching on an MFA course at Glasgow, both at the same time. And there seemed to be a lot of discussion at that point about how art can come outside of the studio, how it can engage with other people, how artists can interact and bring other people into the work. So we were looking at many kind of examples of artists who had kind of done that and what that meant 
at the moment of the 90s that we're in to kind of question the idea of the kind of soul artist in the studio, in the garret, that kind of mythology, you could say. And because I, at the same time, I was trying to figure out how to step outside of the central frame of the works that I've been making, I then very tentatively started to invite people know to let me photograph them wearing an afro wig or you know also at the same time I was living in Brixton in South London at that point and the household that I lived in was full of other artists and we had a dark room and we were always making work with each other just playfully not necessarily thinking about it as a kind of career thing it just happened because we were all makers that we started dressing up dressing down taking photographs you know just kind of experimenting so all of those things were all happening at the same time and I got quite excited about what can happen when you collaborate. Yeah, because I also, there's something about, you know, I mean, I've interviewed Lubaina Hamid and we've spoken about your guys' early exhibitions. And I think what I found, despite your work being so varied throughout your career, there's obviously been a very underlying interest in both the political, but also the personal. And I kind of love that that is also both collaborative in the sense that, you know, the personal exhibiting alongside your friends. I find that amazing, like this notion of friendship as well within exhibition making. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, you know, if I go back to the kind of early 80s, and we were part of that generation of get up and do it yourselves. Yeah. And, you know, the idea of people kind of congregating somehow. But also in terms of just art history, much of the art history that I've been taught in that period was very much about the way in which movements emerged was through networks, through familial kind of networks of artists who gathered, whether it's romantically thinking about Paris, for instance, and that actually there's something that gets generated by kind of common interests and and sociability. And so, yeah, you know, we were friends and we were also professionally trying to get stuff done but in a very DIY way and there's the kind of arrogance of youth that one can have (laughs) that you know you just approach a a space and say we want to do something here and actually gathering together and organizing ourselves in a way we weren't necessarily waiting for someone to notice us we were just getting on with doing what we thought was interesting and out of that generative atmosphere more people came on board and it became a groundswell of activity you know which is I think that's how it should be in some ways totally because it's about conversation isn't it it's about debating it's about discussion and actually when you have that kind of the core of it it's also love isn't it it's like we're all sort of striving for the same thing and when you have that together it can be so powerful which is why people have restaged thin black line you know since and i think that's the power of these exhibitions that actually were brought together by a core friendship group and you can feel it in the work and you can see the connections across the work which is i think really part of its energy and part of why it kind of encouraged more people to come on board as well. So yeah, I mean, I feel immensely proud of being part of that and lucky actually to have been part of what was unfolding at that moment. I mean, it changed me, you know, in terms of what I thought I might be doing to what I then went on to do. And so yeah, that is something that I know lots of people now are are looking at it kind of with a kind of 30-year lens, you might say, being generous, actually, 40-year <laughs> lens, in terms of well, what was that about and why did it have the impact? It's had an impact that we weren't necessarily assuming it would have. We were just on our own particular trip that we needed to go on. 
Yeah. But when you kind of know, you know. And it was amazing to see people like Lubaina and Claudette at the Venice Biennale. You know, you've all sort of lifted each other up. And then for your piece to actually be centred on women's voices, it just felt like this sort of huge collaboration, even me as an audience member. You know, I, I felt all of our voices are allowed to be heard because you kind of almost give us permission for that. One of, one of the key things when I was fabricating the show was about particularly the room... It's called Gallery 4, that's at the back <laughs> of the pavilion oh. with all of the memorabilia mm. that comes out of the devotional project. And I really wanted that space to be something where people might start to recognise something of their own lives in the piece, in the show, but also within music, the context of music, but also in terms of the golden kind of sculptured seating that was gold m- mirrored surface. And you know, my intention was that the audience would, see themselves even if it's subliminally throughout the exhibition as they walked around so that the idea that they were in it and that was an intention of the piece was to have moments where there's a kind of internal connection through the voice but there's also a visual connection either through seeing whether it's an album by Shirley Bassey or the Spice Girls. One of the really interesting things when we were installing the team that were installing the exhibition was mainly Venice-based technical team and when I was doing that particular room the technicians I was working with they didn't speak in English and I, I don't speak Italian. <laughs> it's okay you've got a lot of other strings to your bow. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the technicians just kept singing songs to me from the various particularly Spice Girls songs he just kept singing them all oh, the time I love that like two become one in the middle of the Venice Biennale <laughs> uh, and, and I kind of thought well of course because their music has travelled they are known worldwide and that that this isn't only specific to what we know in terms of the UK this music by all of these women travelled and have been in the backgrounds of all of our lives in a way and also my own knowledge about the performers that have entered the devotional collection has come from collective knowledge Mm. it's something that other people have gifted me information and I've gone and researched these performers some people have donated items and that's how the collection began was people coming along to talks that I would do with a plastic bag of like you know vinyl records and say oh you know this was in my mum's attic and we're cleaning out the house and would you like this for your project so the question about how people are in the work is a foundation of the work itself yeah And we all bring our own stories to it. And music is that just such incredible medium that can just transport us kind of anywhere. It's like smell or taste, isn't it? It can literally just transport you to another time. It really does. And it's, you know, I'm always fascinated by which bits of the brain hold those bits of information and how they become a kind of portal somehow to our own lives and to kind of shared life as well. You know, it kind of dates us in some ways. I remember when I was first back in... This was in 2007. I'd done a, a, a drawn installation at the National Portrait Gallery and I was drawing the names of these performers on the wall and you know, visitors to the museum could see me developing the work as it was being made. And this couple came up to me and they were telling me about Joan Albert trading and how Joan Albert trading records help conceive their children, which I kind of thought was a bit <laughs> too much information. <laughs> I'm not sure I needed to know that necessarily, but people do. They give, you know, they they do give their testimonies in relation to what 
these performers and singers have kind of meant to them in their lives somehow. That is the very nature of the project, which is every time I think, okay, I've done enough now, I'm going to stop. And then people send me more stuff or when it just, it pulls me back in, sorry, to make a kind of Godfather reference here. And I keep then making work from it because it feels like it kind of taps a nerve somehow. But it's endless. That's it the amazing really is thing. Endless. And it's universal as well. <laughs> so good luck. <laughs> It'd be great. But I'd love to go back to your beginnings. You know, you were born in London in 1962 as one of five siblings, grew up in Canning Town and East London. Your father was a cinema projectionist in Camden Town and your mother was working as a nurse, but I'm aware was also a seamstress who used to make rather incredible outfits for you as a kid. <laughs> but I'm fascinated to know where that kind of love of the arts came from. What was your childhood like? You know, part of me wonders whether it's to do with the time in which I was born. You know, born in the early 60s, fairly largest family. Um, social life was very much centred around the home. And, you know, in terms of growing up in that domestic environment, we were always making things because there was always stuff in the house to make things talking about my mum being a seamstress. She used to work in a, a phones factory that was on Brick Lane in Whitechapel. And then for a while she did piecework at home. So she would bring home these bags of material. And, you know, there'd always be these scraps of material in the house. And our household just seemed to be always about us making our own fun, you could say. And, of course, as I said, my, you know, my dad being a tailor. So, you know, making was just what they both did in some way or other and as a consequence the whole household did and then of course like most schools we had trips to art galleries and museums and we happened to live close to two you know the Whitechapel Art Gallery on one side and the Bethnal Green Museum of Childhood was the other one and so these were literally within walking distance of where we lived and so they were just seen as this other spaces so in a way I was kind of surrounded by the idea that you make things it wasn't thought of as unusual in our household you make you you bake you sing you dance <laughs> you do these things and everybody does them it wasn't thought of as something unusual or notable yeah, it's interesting as well. You're saying, you know, you make, you bake, you make, you do all these things because also your work is so multitudinous in the sense that it's like, it's just completely varied. And I love that need and desire for just making whatever you sort of have in arm's length, really. Which is what it was like at home. Yeah. You know, if there's five kids and you've got to keep them entertained. <laughs> I'm one of four, so I know what you mean. I mean, I can't even remember how many outfits I may have made for my dolls. <laughs> you know, me and my sisters, we would just make stuff. And my brother was always drawing from comic books and the whole thing about drawing and making a mark or making something with something i mean we used to make guy force outfits i mean kids don't do that anymore i know what for bonfire night for bonfire night you would make a guy there'd be a kind of competition between you and your friends about which was the best guy and you would go out and collect money based on how well your guy doll was made and you'd literally you dress this thing in you know in clothes and you'd fill it with all sorts of things coming up to November, gangs of kids would be out on the street collecting money based on how well they'd made their guy. And this was before Halloween kind of took over. But before then, it was Guy Fawkes. And I never knew that. Yeah, and so, you know, all the kids that I grew up with, we all made our own guys. And, you know, you, you'd keep it fairly secret so you wouldn't let your <laughs> friends know what you were, you know, how good yours was going to be. <laughs> and there was a whole thing Little about, Sonia Boyce definitely wanted yeah. to win. <laughs> 
but also you people would throw you pennies and then you'd go and buy loads of sweets it had become at that point the moment as kids you could be out on the street you could make something and you could make some money yeah and I'm fascinated, you know, because I grew up in London as well, and I remember going to museums, and, and then I, once I was allowed to take the tube on my own, that's what I would do, just sort of take myself off. I mean, what was it about museums that kind of, like, were they sort of your haven? I think I really enjoyed the space of particularly Whitechapel Art Gallery. I mean, I just was always in there, and I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to be, you know, because we'd gone as a school trip. So it's like the teacher said, this is a place we could go. So I, I thought I could go, you yeah. know, and I'd go there on my own. You know, seven, seven, eight-year-old. That is so cool. Just did not, it, but it didn't occur to me that that was something, because it was literally on the adult step. It was like going into the library. You could go into the library and sit and look at books. You could go into the art gallery and stand there and look at whatever was on show I used to go and play with all the toys that were at the Bethnal Green Museum for Childhood because they were free to play with and they were quite interesting lots of kind of 19th century mechanical toys that you would literally you could turn things with handles and you could just play with them because that's what the museum was there for it wasn't thought of as an extraordinary thing yeah it just was what you know it's like going to the corner shop you know it was <laughs> That, that's so fascinating because also do you think that that has also impacted the way that you work as well because if I'm just thinking about feeling her way this idea that we are in this sort of bejeweled dazzling place that is you know even as a 29 year old I went in and was like this is amazing like I feel it's giving something to my eyes it's playful but it's also serious yeah I mean I think I probably carried a lot and I've, I've been kind of trying to figure this out in more recent years about what are the things that are my particular impulses, the things that I respond to and want to share with other people to respond to. And yeah, I do think that some of those early influences have really impacted on recurring themes that keep coming up. So yeah, pleasure is, is always there for me. That question of the multi-sensory nature of making, it's something that I'm drawn to. I love that. Also because it could just appeal to anyone of any gender or any age. age or anything. Yeah, amazing. And so obviously I know you had this significant teacher called Mrs Franklin who was very encouraging and then you went off to art school. When did you sort of have that moment when you were like, this is what I want to do? So I was on my foundation course. I started to go to art school because of Mrs Franklin one day a week to do life drawing. Thank God for Mrs Franklin. Yeah, she was a wonderful, really great artist and teacher. And she was always standing over my shoulder and I didn't quite understand why she was always standing <laughs> by me in the classroom. And then she kind of wrote my mum this letter and said, oh, Sonia's got to go to art school. So at the age of 15, I started going one day a week. And I went because she told me that I had to go. And then when I was doing the life drawing with Arthur, he said, well, now you've got to go and do foundation, which was one floor up from the floor that the life drawing class was on. So because Arthur told me that I had to go and do foundation, I went and applied Off to do it. Off I went because, <laughs> you know, they were, they were both telling me things that I didn't really know. I hadn't fully realised until kind of well into doing my BA that you could actually be an artist that could be you know what you did as a job I was just doing the things that I thought were interesting and like oh yeah in my 
my sensible head was thinking, oh, I will get a proper job at some point. Well, <laughs> where are we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's still to happen. And it was when I was on foundation, it was one year foundation course at East Ham. And Maggie, who was the art history tutor, was giving us kind of art history lessons. And this was around 1979 This at this point. And she was talking about feminist artists and giving us kind of feminist art history lesson. And it was literally at that point that I thought, this is what I'm going to do. And she was talking specifically about feminist, Phoenix Feminist Artist Collective and some of the work that they were doing around the subject of rape, around the subject of work, nature, gender and gender representation. And there were a couple of other feminist collectives that she spoke about at the same time. But I really kind of locked on to the Phoenix Feminist Art Collective and got to meet them actually afterwards, which was incredible. In fact, I'm still in contact with Margaret Harrison, who was one of the collective members, and she's still making work, and she's great, amazing, amazing artist. But it was that specific art history lesson that made me decide. And that lecture, it was just, it was just absolutely clear to me, oh, you can do this. And I was particularly interested in the fact that they would talk about what was going on in the world in their art practice. It was literally like a kind of fractal thing <laughs> that went off in my brain. I just kind of thought, oh, this is what I have to do. Okay. And I made the decision during that lecture. But I kind of love the idea of sort of almost not fate bringing that, but the fact that you just, you know, chose that course, you chose that day, you chose that. And then actually that one sort of probably five minutes of that lesson or something, that completely planted the seed for what you've done now for the world as well. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was it. That was what I was going to do. I wasn't quite sure how it was all going to work out. We do. But, but you know, it, I kind of thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. And then, you know, it was a case of just following my nose, basically, after that. Totally. That is incredible. And so obviously you sort of went down the more figurative route mm -hmm. in the early years. I mean, with that at the back of your mind, what were your kind of aims and ambitions that you wanted to create then? So because at that point, I mean, I had been very interested in what had been called women's lib yeah. in the 70s. What a time. And so feminist art as a practice, I got very deeply involved in a lot of the debates and discussions about kind of feminist art discourses and the question about the female body, the female body in Western art, the female nude. There was a lot of active debate about representing the female form in art and there were kind of two camps one could be seen as a kind of mary kelly camp and mary kelly who had done this astonishing work called postpartum document which kind of was documenting her relationship with her son basically when he was a baby which was an incredibly brave work to do in the 70s and i know there was a lot of derisory response to that work and she was very much talking about not only the question of the representations of woman as mother, but also son and this kind of psychoanalytical discourse between mother and, and child in that work. So there was a lot of very intense debate about whether, uh, and I'm talking about the 70s here, whether the female form, given what was emerging in terms of feminist thinking, whether there was too many images in some way of the female body and whether actually there was so much to battle around how to rethink and reposition a gaze, you could say, about the female body. 
that there was a kind of camp that was saying, well, we have to make work that doesn't have the female body in it. Yeah. But I was of a generation that had really seen very, very limited images of the black female body. And I say black female body. I'm speaking here specifically about the African diasporic female body. And so for me, also because I'd done life drawing, I started in that, you could say, classical tradition or academic tradition. I started by drawing myself. And I drew myself because I felt it was difficult for me to ask someone else to be in that position, which is why I was in the early drawings. But this was a few years later, and I graduated in 83. So, you know, as I was graduating, this is when I was making all these images where I was the kind of central protagonist. But I was still kind of wrestling with some of those earlier debates about gender and representation within art and some of the tough fights that they'd been. And also not only tough fights about what kind of female imagery, but also that there were quite tough fights about women and painting and the status of painting within art and how historically women were not allowed into the life drawing class and that, you know, they were kind of siloed off into flower painting and what was considered to be the decorative arts. So there were lots of these debates that were happening in the late 70s and early 80s about not only what the imagery was, but also the question about medium. Mm. And also this idea of like sort of repositioning the gaze as well. Yeah, absolutely. But the fact that you also used yourself. That's what came about because I'd been to see a show at the Whitechapel Art Gallery I was studying at this point, which was a kind of two-hander show of Tina Modotti, who's a 1930s photographer, and also Frida Kahlo. This was a show that was... This was my first introduction to Frida Kahlo's work. Oh, my God, I had no idea that show happened. Yes, that was around 81, 82. That is so cool. There was a series of shows that had happened at the ICA that started off... The first of them was Women's Images of Men, And then there was a whole series of shows. One was called About Time, which was about new media and feminist art practice. Another one was called Issues, which was about social issues and art practice. But it was three feminist exhibitions that had happened at the ICA around 1980, just as I was finishing my foundation. There was a lot of kind of feminist shows that were happening at that period. And so it's kind of off the back of that, seeing the work of Frida Kahlo and seeing the ways in which she had been able to bring together these various strands, you could say, the question of kind of indigenous Mexican iconography alongside questions around surrealism and Western modernist thinking at the time. And for me, I was really fascinated by how she had brought these different aspects of herself through into the way in which she was making art and that it was read as very autobiographical that she could speak of herself but speak of herself through these various languages visual languages so for me she became this kind of key figure for the work that I was then doing which people often refer to and it is in part autobiographical but it is also very much a direct reference to Frida Kahlo's work and that lineage of a kind of feminist art practice lineage in terms of making imagery. And I always, you know, subsequently think about those works of Frida's as being very much about performing 
she's always performing for the viewers, even if the viewer it happens to be herself in some way. But there's always this kind of address to the audience that she makes, which situates her as a performer to be viewed as a performer, as a performance of these various narratives that she's kind of thinking about. So for me, her works are not a kind of internal dialogue. They're very much, they're looking outward. And so that was one of the key things that I was trying at that point to to kind of work in reference to. Yeah. But what I find so fascinating is that, you know, there are so many sort of complex relationships as well within these works, whether it is, you know, rice and peas or big women's talk, you know, whether it's a sort of introspective look at oneself, almost looks like oneself is sort of looking in the mirror or perhaps it's centered on a child, but you can't see the mother's face. And, you know, you think of yourself, even if you're an adult, you sort of put yourself in that child's point of view and it kind of repurposes all these different relationships that we have to all different people in the world. We can be mothers, daughters, sisters, wives, whatever. But one of the really interesting works that you exhibit at Lubaina Hamid's Thin Black Line at the ICA in 1985 was a work called Mr. Close Friend of the Family Pays a Visit While Everyone Else is Out from 1985, which is a monochromatic drawing of a man and a little girl. His head is cut off, but you can see his hand almost about to touch the young girl's shoulder or chest as she gazes at us. Now, in 2021, you revisited this work by challenging the subject matter at the Serpentine Radio Ballads project by creating this incredibly moving film called Yes, I Hear You, which recounted stories by those who have had experience of domestic abuse. This work, this video is one of the most powerful videos I've ever seen in my life. And just the fact that it goes beyond... It goes beyond art for me, just the way that these women and the man also is telling their stories within this space. And just the fact that, I mean, I've got more questions, but why did you want to revisit this particular work? I mean, and I have have been thinking about this because there's two things. Back in the 1980s, there's an art historian called John Picton who taught art history at SOAS. And he was very involved with what was happening in terms of a kind of burgeoning black arts movement. And, you know, the conversation that we had, and he says, you know, one of the things that we, we have to be really careful about, those of us that are black artists, is the question of auto-ethnicity, or one could call this kind of autobiographical starting point for work, and that one can always be pushed back into that space where it's, oh, it's only you're just, it's about you. It doesn't go beyond you you're just telling your particular story so i just keep thinking about him recently and his warning that that can be a kind of cul-de-sac in which people can only see you within the context of you talking about yourself and at that point in the 80s i was very much the central figure and moving away i think john picton was really useful and really helpful to me to think about these stories that i'm trying to tell are I have a connection to, but I think other people have them as well. And I'm trying to figure out a wider political, cultural, social context for them. And I mentioned briefly, you know, the Phoenix Feminist Artists Collective. And one of the works that they had done was about the question of rape. Now, rape as a rape culture has a long history within the visual arts, within Western art. You know, it's, it's, it's a subject that has been a matter of debate, particularly in terms of feminist art history thinking critique so i you know i i i i come at this 
or I come at the answer to this very much thinking about how that work might be positioned within that discourse around rape culture and the visual arts. And, you know, if one is talking about Western painting and the history of Western painting and the history of the female body, the female body is always presented as this extremely exquisitely beautiful body that again can be looked at it's a sensual body and almost as if this female body is enjoying the violence that is being enacted upon her this is one of the key motifs the violence of the male gaze the violence of the male gaze but also the violence of the idea of rape on women as this thing that they themselves enjoy and also they want us to look at how much they are enjoying it and that this has been a long-standing kind of feminist critique in terms of the subject of rape and abuse and violence on women and its history. So I'm now wanting us to kind of talk about how Mr. Close, friend of the family, even though it's something that did happen to me, sits within the field of visual arts and what it is that I'm resisting in relation to that long history of how the female might be represented within what might be called rape culture within Western art practice. And the figure is very clearly clothed. The figure is clearly addressing an audience in quite a critical way, I think. Yes, the male subject does remain anonymised, you could say. But the figure of the female is looking directly at the audience as if they are somehow implicated in this question about looking and what looking what they're looking at, what is it that they're looking at. And for me, this is really me kind of stepping outside a little bit of speaking of this only in the autobiographical sense of what took place and kind of entering a kind of confessional space. That With this conversation, it's really important that we think about the relations of those motifs and how it's impacted on our own understandings of gender and gender violence in visual culture. And that there is a long history, not only of that, us being co-opted into it, but also there's a history of resistance to that through feminist critique. And I was also kind of thinking on my way here about there was a really great exhibition that was at the Whitney as part of the Whitney Independent Study Programme. They used to have a curatorial programme and they had done a particular exhibition and publication on the question of rape or the subject of rape in art as, as coming out in a very critical way. So I'm only saying this, not wanting to stand up and give a sermon, so to speak, but there is a long tradition that requires us to think Yes, there is the person and the narrative that is being depicted. And it speaks of a wider cultural and also political landscape that we're in. And so for me, yes, I hear you. And that work came out of a series of doing interviews with those who'd experienced sexual violence, domestic violence, those who care for people who are caught up in that scenario and also a perpetrator and out of that process of doing interviews to actually talk with people who have had that as a a very traumatizing but also then surviving that scenario 
to then make that into an artwork that somehow tries to think about what all those things mean and how we may relate and listen to those stories, which are quite harrowing. And think about that in the context of how it has sat within, within Western art as a narrative. It, it was so, you know, the fact that you went to that art history lesson and they taught you about the feminist art and you've now made this as a result. And I don't mind if, if I can quote from the film as well, the, the girl at the end who said, there are so many silent survivors amongst us who won't share their experiences through shame, through denial, but inevitably we are allowing this thing to continue. Once you shine a light on something, you can see exactly what it is. And I just thought that this work sort of transcends everything because someone's going to watch that film and it will change their life. It will then change someone else's life and it will change a culture and it will hopefully change the world. One, one can really, 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 really hope because in some ways you kind of think it's hard to believe we still have to talk about this now because it has been a discussion there has been activism around the question of violence to women and violence to children. And, you know, I'm not going to suggest that rape is, you know, the way it's sometimes talked about as if it's a sexual thing. It's an act of violence yeah. against a body, someone, often someone that is known during lockdown, which is when that work was being made. It was horrific what was kind of happening we were doing workshops with social workers and people who work in the kind of care industry. And every single time we had a Zoom gathering, two or three people from that session had to go and deal with an emergency. And, you know, it was palpable, even though we were doing this on Zoom, how exhausted the staff team who deal with this day in, day out deal with the police, deal with the courts, deal with the families, the immediate people that are affected and the ripple effect of all of that, that they were absolutely exhausted. But, you know, their commitment to trying to find a way to, to give care and to give critique at the same time and to put in place... Art has, a, has one place within there but there's a much bigger social structure that needs to be thought about because these things are actually very real and listening and listening and actually hearing what someone is saying and actually understanding the nature of the terror and the violence is something that I was wanting the work to for people to be moved by and not just a kind of argument about um what these things mean and just the fact that also in this piece you know they also almost teach you just on a human level how to sort of take action as well there was a really powerful line one of the girls said regularly speak about you know checking in on our friends do we feel safe loved valued do we feel like we can walk away when we need to and just that idea that an artwork can actually teach you to check in and what a difference that can make to someone I mean I, I really feel that you know I mean with all the people that I've worked with and particularly with this project I'm always very honoured and humbled that people trust me with what they want to offer and contribute to the projects because they are 
giving something that is often very brave to do. And, you know, in my way, I'm trying to hold what other people have, have offered. Out of genuinely being interested and wanting to know, just wanting to know. You know, it feeds what I do. I can't do it without people, you know, people forward and saying, yes, actually, I want to do this, I want to say this, I want to share this, I want to, this is what I know. This is, you know, I, I feel, you know, I feel quite blessed in many ways that people are prepared to do that. But that is the power of collaboration, because like the sort of power of collaboration and collectivity, and the, we can change things, you know, we can make the world a better place if we all work together. Yeah, well, hopefully, you know, thinking about the Feeling Her Way project, when I was first talking with the performers, we had a Zoom meeting. They were asking me, oh, well, what do you want us to do? And I, I said, well, you know, I want you to do what you do. But I suppose if I was going to give any kind of handrail, what would it feel like to be free? And I think this question of freedom is not something is an isolated individual thing. We can only be free through our own social ability to create a space to be free. It's dependent on all of us. It's not dependent on one or another or singularly. Freedom is, is something that we all have to be free in order for freedom to possibly exist. I'm not the first person to kind of say this. But I do think that that's really true, that we create as the systems by which we live by not one person or another person or someone who's in power. We collectively make those decisions or even if we're not consciously feeling that we are, we do. Absolutely. Sonia Boyce, thank you so much for this incredible conversation. Sorry, I could talk for England. No, no, no. I mean, really, I could go on. I could go on. I have a thousand questions. But thank you so much for this, but also your work, because it is so important and... It's changing the world. But we do have one more question. As this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if there was a woman artist working now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to her? Well, it would definitely be Lydia Clark. Because of her experiments in kind of social practice. And I suppose I would ask her how she shifted. She was doing these very kind of abstract geometric paintings and structures and how she moved from doing those works that were either on the wall or on a plinth to what was it that shifted her into a social practice and working this was during the late 1960s early 70s she worked with art students at the Sorbonne in Paris after fleeing Brazil from the dictatorship she had to leave and then she started doing these works that were about how we might relate to each other through these objects. I suppose I'd really want to know what was it, what was the impetus for her to start thinking about those kinds of experiments and then what it led to and was very influential in some of the ideas around the therapeutic nature of art, uh, art and therapy. Yeah, amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the phenomenal Sonia Boyce. I am just in awe of all of her work, the multitudinous of it, and the way that she spans painting to perform 
performance, video, and more. As always, I have linked through to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Michaela Carmichael and research assistant was Viva Ruji. If you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so delighted if you were to rate, review and subscribe as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 